right? What he has to say about things in First Corinthians are a commandment from God. Mm -hmm. And so recognizing that uh, other people get some of the credit for what's in the epistle does not, in my opinion, diminish its authority, does not diminish its inspiration, does not diminish its value for the life of the church today. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that we need to be serious about the historical context of Paul as a missionary. Yeah. You know, that he's working with church and this particular church in Corinth and the various house churches in, in the city of Corinth have all kinds of problems. And as a missionary called by God to deal with those, to establish and deal with those churches, that's what he's doing. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today I sat down with a friend and one of my favorite teachers of all time, Dr. Richard Oster, professor of New Testament at Harding School of Theology in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. Oster specializes in the letters of Paul, and he is a recognized expert on the archaeology of the city of Ephesus. He also had a reputation for being one of the hardest teachers and teaching what was arguably the hardest class at Harding School of Theology, a class called New Testament World, which for me absolutely opened my eyes to reading the Bible in ways that I had never known how to read the Bible before. Incredibly informative for my experience as a Bible student and also a Bible teacher. It was a delight to talk with Dr. Oster about one of Paul's most important letters, the letter we call 1 Corinthians. As we'll see in the interview, this is probably not the very first letter Paul ever wrote to the Corinthians, but it is the first one we have. We'll also see how Paul answers a list of questions the Corinthians sent to him, and how, as a missionary, Paul responds to the various issues by urging the Corinthians to realize the gospel despite the less-than-ideal situations they find themselves in. If you enjoy the kinds of conversations we're having here on the podcast, especially the series on the New Testament, would you be willing to like and subscribe to us and maybe share us with someone that you think who might benefit from this? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, Dr. Oster, thank you so much, sir, for joining us on Faith in the Folds today. It is a treat to have you in studio with me. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Dr. Oster, I met you first in 2010 at then Harding University Graduate School of Religion in Memphis, Tennessee. That's a, that was a mouthful back then. Now, nowadays, you're still at the same place, just with a, with a better name, Harding School of Theology. Will you tell us how long have you been teaching? What kinds of things do you find yourself teaching these days? And just generally help our audience get to know you as we as we kick off our episode today on First Corinthians. Well, I um, <clears throat> had been a campus minister for three years at the University of Houston in Texas. I am a Texan. Um, I am these days. <laughs> well, um, I, I'm, you know, some people think you, if you're born there, you're always one, you know, there's a sort of that approach. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I've, I moved to Memphis in 1978. 40 plus years ago, 
And so I've been teaching here at Harding School of Theology since the fall of 1978. Mm-hmm. And so before that, I um, had done, done some adjunct teaching for Abilene Christian University. And I um, started teaching as an adjunct in the humanities program at the University of Houston, mm-hmm. which became sort of a seed for their interest in teaching religion academically at the university. And to this day, they still have religion courses offered. I don't oh, know neat. if there's a minor in religion or whatever, but it, uh, part of that, I think, came from the fact that I just went over and talked to the dean and said, here are my credentials. And I imagined um, a city the size of Houston and the University of Houston, there'd be some people who'd want to take a religion course. Yeah. And so I taught courses in New Testament, early Christian history, Old Testament. These were uh, junior, senior level undergraduate courses. Mm-hmm. I did that for a couple of years uh, before I left. Yeah, I, so anyway, I did not know that. Well, you know, these little secrets. We <laughs> <laughs> we, we drive through Houston every time we have to um, go up go out of texas to uh, to get back home to nashville and so i yeah. i didn't know that well I'll, I'll look a little bit more fondly on houston now so well, I'm, I'm pretty sure my name is not on a plaque anyway oh. related to that <laughs> they're missing a golden opportunity there <laughs> yeah so um but anyway so i've been uh, at harding school of theology maybe 43 years something like that but uh my academic training was from uh, my phd from princeton seminary and that when I was there, the way they did it is you, if you majored in scripture, you majored in um, one one testament and minored in the other. And so my major was in New Testament. I had a minor in old and then a second minor. And so um, when I came to Harding School of Theology, I taught in the area, have, have been teaching these 40 plus years in the area of New Testament. Yeah. And the area, the person I replaced was the founding dean, W.B. West Jr. He had retired, and so they needed someone to pick up his courses. And so he had basically been teaching in the area of Pauline epistles, um, book of Revelation, those kind of things. So I teach that and um, teach in the book of Acts. My courses are divided between English track exegesis and some Greek track exegesis. Yeah. I teach also courses backgrounds, New Testament world. Yep. So yeah, and share the Greek program, you know. Yeah. So that's that's sort of what I do and have been doing <laughs> these many decades. Right. Yeah. It's uh it's 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 fun for me to be able to say that um, I prepare the elementary Greek students to send them off to you uh, for Greek readings, which is uh, kind of a whirlwind tour of the of the Greek New Testament. I try to make it that, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> and I, I know it seems that way to them. Um, yeah, I consistently tell my students like, okay, when you get into Greek readings with Dr. Oster, he is gonna ask you to be able to tell him, you know, every every bit about this Greek verb or about this Greek noun. And the reason why he's going to ask you is because this Greek noun could look like it, you know, look like some other Greek noun or some other form. So you just need to know. You're going to need to know these, and I want you to know them now. So I 
I'm reminding them consistently of yeah, things that you will probably ask them. Yeah, I appreciate you're doing that because um, sometimes they are slow to learn. <laughs> you know, I I gave them some warnings this past fall and readings about, you know, don't do this to hurt your grade and do this to make it better. And some of them sort of were compliant and some were not so much. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah but I, I you know god loves them all you know and they'll all do well in ministry and lord willing <laughs> lord willing uh dr oster can i ask um i did not prepare you for this question I, it, it's not a doozy it's kind of a softball what has been your favorite class to teach these 40 plus years at uh, at harding well um in terms of a, of a course that is outside of scripture per se, I guess it would be New Testament world, because mm -hmm. that really um, is a, uh, a course that is just filled with uh, a multitude of epiphanies for students, Yeah, because they don't know anything for the most part about the world, whether it's the Jewish background or the Greek or the Roman background of scripture um, and the world of Jesus or Paul or the apostles or the early believers and so they are usually astounded to learn about it and so i enjoy that very much and that's also an area in which i've done research and do research mm -hmm. his backgrounds um so that's sort of one compartment you know his backgrounds um my undergraduate degree was in uh, classical latin and greek and so i've just been familiar with that world some and enjoyed it mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to say if you look at actually the scripture courses I teach, you know, I sort of prefer the one that I'm teaching that semester. It's my favorite one. You know, when I'm teaching the book Revelation, it is the best course. Yeah, right. When I'm teaching Acts, Acts is the best course. And <laughs> it's coming spring when I teach Galatians and Romans, I'm sure, you know, they'll be the best course. Uh -huh. letters, you know, so yeah. it's that kind of thing. I just fall in love with all of them. And it's hard to pick one that's consistently the favorite, no matter what you're yeah. teaching. Yeah. That makes sense. I had um, had you for several courses, but New Testament World was one that had had the I would say the scariest reputation out of all the classes that um, that I heard students taking. You know, everybody was talking about oh, New Testament World is so great, but you're going to work so hard. It's like a PhD seminar and all this other stuff. And, you know, I, I I I took it and did well in it, and I'd say that that was probably the class the the bible related class that opened up scripture the most for me um was probably that that class and i ended up that it, that prompted me or pre prepared me very well for doctoral work in the new testament and so if i haven't already told you thanks for that class thanks i i've got you know all, all the books that i used for that class i've got them right over here on my bookshelf just just waiting on me yeah. if I need them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, students have told me before that, you know, in terms of their own hermeneutic of how to approach scripture and uh, even people whose ministry area, say, was missions, you know, they found very valuable information and, pers and perspectives yeah. in that course for their own sort of developing missiology yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So, so uh, let's turn our attention to First uh, Corinthians, something that uh, I know you've uh, taught at different times and have published on before. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians is uh, one of Paul's longer letters, and um, he, he covers a ton of topics in there. Before we actually get to Paul, uh, before we actually get to 1 Corinthians, help us understand what is the genre? What's the, the literary type of 1 Corinthians? And does that give us any indication for Paul's aims for this work? Yeah, I generally would call it an, an epistle, say, in contrast to a book like Acts, mm -hmm. you know so much about, or the book of Revelation, or one of the Gospels. Um, <clears throat> and it is um, written, this is very important, it is written from the pen of someone who is a missionary, you know, mm -hmm. even though he is studied by habitually studied by learned people, by scholars, um, that's not who he himself was. And sometimes in the history of Christianity, that's been forgotten, that the people who are most famous for talking about Paul are, in fact, people unlike Paul. You know, are, yeah, I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah, it makes sense. He well, viewed himself as a missionary primarily. Well, that, that's what an apostle is, yeah. I would say. Um, and I am certainly all for scholars and <laughs> there being scholars and scholarship. <laughs> yeah. I, I try to be one. <clears throat> um, but whether it is people who have done more what is conventionally called systematic theology, mm -hmm. or people who begin with exegesis or apologetics or whatever, um, they all come to Paul and his documents from a perspective that are steps away from who he is. Mm. And nothing's mm. wrong with that, but it's really important to know that that exists and to keep that in mind when you're working through the material. Um, <clears throat> and these epistles are, um, like I said, from a missionary trying to nurture and keep stabilized these communities of faith that he he and co-workers you know sylvanus and timothy and titus and others have worked very very hard and sometimes put their lives at great risk yeah um to establish these congregations um you know priscilla aquila others and uh as paul himself says people are risking their lives to do this as we think about uh Christians today who are suffering around the world and some dying. Um, at times, this was the world of Paul and his co-workers. If you believe, as I do, the narratives and acts, uh, there were times the pushback was pretty severe. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a, you know, the earliest Christian communities were uh, taking place within the, under the umbrella of Judaism. They were Jewish groups, you know, all the members were Jews. And so we know about pogroms and hostility toward Jews at times in the Roman world. And so uh, that's just, just the world they lived in. And it's it's been easy for you know scholars and others to forget that as we sort of analytically dissect Paul's letters intellectually and academically. Mm -hmm. So it's important to just remember who he is and what he's about as we, you know, because there are different kinds of letters. I mean, you have people like Seneca, the Roman philosopher Seneca, who writes letters, you know, and other people. So Paul's not the only letter writer. We have papyri that contain letters. Mm -hmm. So it's it's letters 
but it's who's writing the letters and, and who is the intended audience that's really important to have in there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like how you put this. I mean, I, I've known Paul was a missionary. We talk about Paul's missionary journeys and we've categorized them and, you know, have charts and maps in the backs of our Bibles and things like that. But to actually think about Paul as a missionary and therefore letting that kind of weigh in on how we read and understand Paul, well, that does make a lot of sense. That also makes me feel um, maybe a little more hesitant in some ways, perhaps, to be as maybe to be as dogmatic as, uh, as perhaps I have been with some things uh, because I, my training is not in missions and my training is in you know, biblical studies and you know, the world of the New Testament, and like we mentioned earlier, uh, which, you know, Paul, of course, says, you know, with his training as a Pharisee, certainly has uh, the ability to, to handle scripture uh, well, but yeah, to, because he viewed himself as an apostle, a commissioned representative, therefore a missionary. Um, that does give, a, I think, a, a helpful shade of nuance to to Paul that maybe I hadn't uh, considered before. It was just always kind of back there, but had never forefronted that before. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so with, uh, with a work like 1 Corinthians... Um, let me ask, since we, I, I, I didn't prepare you for this question either, but again, I think this is another softball that, uh, that you can handle pretty easily. We, we call the letter 1 Corinthians. There is some discussion, though, if this is the first letter that Paul wrote to his friends in Corinth, would you be willing to weigh in on that for us uh, a little bit? Well, we certainly know from chapter 5, verse 9, that there is a prior letter. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we know from Ephesians, there's a prior letter that he's written to them, or at least that, that you know, this, this ethical material he's emphasized to them before. Mm -hmm. In Galatians, when he talks about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, he, you know, he reminds them that he's already talked to them about this. Maybe it was just in the preaching he had done there and not through epistles. But um, so I guess what I would say is there, there are, there, there is at least a previous letter before what we call 1 Corinthians. Whether that is a section out of 2 Corinthians, I'm not so clear about. Right, yeah. You know, I mean, um, if we had early copies of 2 Corinthians that in fact had major blocks of material in different order or missing some of the material. Mm -hmm. But if you have a, a composition theory or a partition theory, you have to have a very good explanation, in my opinion, of how these different letters got put together. Yeah. Sort of yeah. as they went to the publisher. You know, I mean, at what point, you know, who put yeah. these things together? Mm -hmm. Sort of whose who's genius was that? Yeah. And that's just all unknown material. Um, I, don't, I don't have a lot invested in that debate. Sure. You know, yeah. if, if there's a section of second, what we call second Corinthians that was really written prior, you know, we find some papyrus or, or whatever that's, you know, we can date earlier or something that's, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> to review uh, or to, to 
uh, to help bring the audience up to speed in the next episode that will debut after this one with Dr. Fred Long from Asbury Seminary, uh, who will do our episode on Second Corinthians. I, I recorded his episode earlier than this one, so I can't remember if Dr. Long goes into the discussion of the, the unity of Second Corinthians, but for the sake of the audience to kind of bring them up to speed, if you read any any scholarly approach or any scholarly commentary or any study of Second Corinthians, it's almost inevitable that they will spend some amount of time on on the the arrangement of the sections of Second Corinthians because as you read the letter by itself in your in your Bible, so it it sounds kind of like Paul might have put the letter away for a week and then came back and started a whole new idea with a whole new topic and um maybe something serious happened in between you know one section and the next section and so a lot of people thought well you know surely these were separate sections that somehow got put together and and all this other stuff and as dr roaster you alluded to we just don't have any early handwritten copies of second corinthians that have any order different from what we have in our bibles and maybe something like that existed at one point but we just don't have something like that so anyway um yeah not that you needed that review but for the sake of the audience you know for them to be aware that hey this is a conversation that people are having and so some people wonder if maybe there was one section of second corinthians that was actually sent to the church in corinth before Paul then sent the whole big letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. Those are different ideas, uh, that's speculation, but um, ultimately, like you said, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul mentions that uh, he had written in a previous letter to talk to them about some things, and then um, it appears that the uh, church in Corinth sent him another letter, which then prompted him to respond with what we now know as first corinthians is that uh, is that kind of a, an accurate assessment of consensus on first corinthians i think so and and just the problems that have arisen not just a, a letter that he received right. yeah but the chloe's house you know the people actually the people who come from chloe's house you know yeah. and, and uh, some of those kind of issues yeah and so that that leads us into um, what are some of the major emphases? What is it that Paul is trying to do in a kind of a big picture way with uh, with this letter of First Corinthians? Well, I think it's important for the reader um, at any almost any level to um, realize that Paul himself does not get the credit, so to speak. And I'm using credit sort of in quotation marks, mm -hmm. for the content of the epistle. For example, in, in 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters are about fragmentation and disunity in the church in Corinth. Paul says he hears about this from some people who came from the house of Chloe. Mm -hmm. Chloe, by the way, is a woman's name. And so Paul is across the Aegean Sea. If you look at a map, there's Corinth in Greece, there's the Aegean Sea, and to the east, there is Asia Minor, mm -hmm. 
in the city of Ephesus, and that's where Paul is located when he's writing 1 Corinthians. Mm. And so at least those first four chapters, maybe five and six, chapters five and six, all this material being reported to Paul is coming from Chloe's people. Yeah. Chapter seven, verse one, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Mm. And so there he's acknowledging, he's responding, the topics that he's writing about in 1 Corinthians 7, and maybe beyond that, but for certain in 1 Corinthians 7, all that material is coming from them. Mm -hmm. It's his response to their statements. Yeah. I don't know that there were questions, but their statements on these, these topics. Now, uh, it is certainly my view that Paul's response to all this is from God. He says later in 1 Corinthians that anyone who's spiritual recognize, right, that what he has to say about things in 1 Corinthians are a commandment from God. Mm -hmm. And so recognizing that uh, other people get some of the credit for what's in the epistle does not, in my opinion, diminish its authority, does not diminish its inspiration, does not diminish its value for the life of the church today. Mm -hmm. But it does mean that we need to be serious about the historical context of Paul as a missionary. Yeah. You know, that he's working with church and this particular church in Corinth and the various house churches in, in the city of Corinth have all kinds of problems. And as a missionary called by God to deal with those, to establish and deal with those churches, that's what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And so he's not sitting in a library. And by the way, they had libraries in the ancient world. Uh, right, yeah. And yeah, a, a, fa per, a famous one in Egypt that burned down tragically. Yeah, and the, well, the best facade, the best front of an ancient library preserved anywhere in the Mediterranean is in Ephesus, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, and so they had libraries, but that isn't where Paul spends his days, right? He's got a job. He works on leather products, you know, tents and other things. Um, and dealing with these congregations of God's people, trying to keep them in the narrow way of sanctification and orthodoxy, believing the right things you're supposed to believe. So anyway, um, that's a long answer to your question about, you know, the, the letters and sort of what they're composed of. Yeah. yeah. Some of the problems that Paul d addresses schism division yeah sorry what was that so chapters one through four are divisions yeah. schisms mm -hmm. five and six are sexual immorality mm -hmm. which begins with incest and then moves to prostitution yeah chapters five and six chapter seven is labeled different ways but it's about marriage celibacy marriage, divorce, remarriage, and that issue in the context of Christians married to other Christians mm -hmm. and Christians married to non-believers, Christians married to non-believers who want to stay marriage in marriage, sometimes Christians married to non-believers who don't want to stay in the marriage. Yeah. But it's complex. You know, Paul doesn't have a single track he hands them and says, this is my view on marriage, divorce, remarriage. You know, yeah. he's going through the nuances of different circumstances. 
Then chapters, my understanding is in chapters eight, nine, and 10 are about meats offered to idols, idolatry. Mm-hmm. Chapter 11, you have two units there that have to do with things in the assembly. One is the first one is about head coverings and sort of gender relationships in assembly and mm-hmm. worship. And the second one, which we know better and more about, is uh, the Lord's Supper texts. That's the end of chapter 11. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 are about spiritual gifts. Okay. And that's where we have most of Paul's teaching about speaking in tongues and prophecy. Um, Chapter 15 is about the resurrection, but it's not a doctrinal statement where Paul says, you know, they just need to know something about the resurrection, so I'm going to write about it. Yeah. That's there because there are church members in the church of God, as Paul calls it, the church of God in Corinth, who do not believe in their own future resurrection. And so he, as the missionary over that group of people, knows that is a serious aberration of what they believe. Yeah. And so, you know, God's concerned about that you believe the right things and that you practice things right, that you live right as a godly yeah. person and that you believe things yeah. that are core core materials. And certainly the belief in your own future resurrection is one of those. Right. And so he spends one of the longest chapters in first Corinthians about the resurrection, the future resurrection of Christians. Cause he says, some of you don't believe in that. So I've got to help correct that false yeah. teaching. Then 16 begins with instruction about uh, the collection this is the collection, the Pauline collection for the poor among the Christians in Judea. Yeah. As mentioned in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Um, is is it about the Sunday morning collection? Because <laughs> I, hear, I hear some people use those verses for talking about the Sunday morning collection. I imagine they did in the church you grew up in, didn't they? I, uh, not in the church I grew up in, but in the church that I attended in Kentucky, uh, it got mentioned some, yeah. Yeah, that would be unusual, because usually 1 Corinthians 16 is a text that's used to reference at least, you know, giving on Sunday, or Mm. the first day of the week. Yeah. So that's that's a great diversity of topics. And the thing that strings them together is these are there because... The men and women in the church of God in Corinth are being dragged here and there by the intrusion of the pagan culture that's around them. Mm -hmm. It's affecting what they think about resurrection. It's affecting how they're doing the Lord's Supper. Because he said, right in chapter 11, some of you are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Some of you are not waiting on each other at the Lord's Supper. Those are kind of problems that come out of pagan culture. Yeah. Okay. Um, thing about incest, going to prostitutes, just all of these issues are various examples of the intrusion of pagan culture into the lives, either singly or corporately, or it's really both, yeah. of um, the Church of God in Corinth. And yeah. He is a missionary, cannot sit by and watch all this fall apart since God has commissioned him you know, 
to work toward the sanctification, you know, and the edification of uh, those people in Corinth who claim to follow God's will through Christ. Yeah. Can we dig into a couple of those as uh, just kind of test cases? Uh, could we look at resurrection and Lord's Supper, maybe? What was it about? How was pagan culture um, infecting their view of resurrection? Okay. You're wanting me to get people upset now, right? <laughs> I thought I picked a fairly, okay. <laughs> fairly so, innocent one. Do we need to move to something less controversial like sex? <laughs> no. <laughs> um. Jesus taught and the early church taught that the hope that Christians had for the future was their personal resurrection mm -hmm. at the time of the return of Christ. Yeah. And the final judgment. Uh, what had happened uh, in Paul's day is that uh, a lot of Christians had absorbed the belief. First of all, this is the belief they probably had before they became Christian. Because it was out of a pagan background, right? Out of a pagan background, yeah. Um, that when you die, there is a poor post mortem judgment because paganism, a lot of pagans believed in a life after death. Mm -hmm. But life after death is not the same as resurrection, right? Okay, so um, you can go, for example, to the Egyptian Book of the Dead which dates back to the time of Moses. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can see there that there are scenes in the afterlife of people being judged based on how they lived in this life. And so, typical, yeah, typical one is um, one of the judges holding, you know, a, a scales, right? Scale. You have a, a, your heart on one scale and a feather yeah. on the other one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if your heart is heavy and weighed down with sin and injustice, you know, and pulls down because it's heavier than the feather, then you are judged and punished by the Egyptian gods. Mm -hmm. So what you want is to have a very light heart. Yeah. 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 And so, but uh, in the Greek period before Paul, like Plato and others, talked about uh, post-mortem existence of the soul, the immortality of the soul. Mm -hmm. And secondly, a post-mortem judgment where bad people were punished in a lake of fire mm -hmm. and good people were blessed. Those and realm, so, those areas had names, right? Tartarus being the name of the... Tartarus um, is the name of one of them, yes. Yeah, the, the place of, of, of judgment, basically. And yes. Isles of the Blessed or the Elysian Fields. So yes. It goes by a few names. Right. And, um, yeah. yeah, because if you, um, Jesus gets the credit for really talking about the word hell more than anybody else in the New Testament. If you just mm -hmm. look in your English concordance under the word hell, you'll see it occurs about a dozen times in the New Testament. Jesus speaks at that 11 of the 12, I think is what it is. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to talk about hell, Jesus is the hell guy. Okay. He's the yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, and he's not saying, hey, you shouldn't believe in this. He's an advocate of hell. Right. <clears throat> yeah. The, the other time is uh, in Second Peter, okay, 
and it's a translation of this Greek word about Tartarus. And the thing is, in the in the Gospels where Jesus is saying it, the word is Gehenna. Mm-hmm. Okay, when no one outside of of Judea is going to know what Gehenna is, it's this yeah. trash dump, right? In, in Jerusalem, no one living anywhere else is going to know what that is. Yeah. So to, to talk about <clears throat> the place of eternal fire and judgment, and you're referring to some place in Jerusalem, that's not going to communicate very well to people who yeah. live in the Greek and Roman world. Yeah. My opinion is, so they used a term that everybody knew in the Greek and Roman world. And that's what Peter's doing mm. over in the second Peter. Yeah. By using Tartarus. But yeah, that's a name that, so anyway, back to your question. So the thing that's infiltrating and corrupting Christian belief is they're saying, we don't have a future resurrection. We don't need that. We're getting everything we need when we die. Our souls are immortal and we'll be rewarded or punished when we die. We don't Mm -hmm. need Jesus coming back. And to say that is heresy. Right. Because part of the gospel is Jesus comes back and shows that God is more powerful than death. He defeats death. And if you want to see a, a sort of like a graphic novel picture of that, if you know what a graphic novel is, mm-hmm. go look at Revelation 20. Yeah. Scene where Hades and death are thrown physically into the lake of fire. Mm-hmm. That's a way to talk about, okay, death being defeated forever is by death being put into the lake of fire. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's an example is... And unfortunately, in the modern church, go to modern funerals in America right now, among evangelicals, Church of Christ, sometimes you could walk away with the impression that a lot of Christians believe our our loved one who just died, they've gone right to heaven, they've gotten all the reward, they already know whether they're going to be rewarded or punished by God, they don't need a judgment day, they've got everything they need to know right now, as soon as they, you know, were brain dead and the doctor said, okay, this person's dead. And then everything they need to know. Yeah. They don't need the judgment day of God. And that right. is so contrary to scripture. So that's, that's one text. Mm-hmm. And it would show the infiltration of paganism. Yeah. 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 What about the Lord's Supper there in first Corinthians 11? Uh, and perhaps maybe even some in uh, chapter 10, where Paul seems like he's anticipating some discussion of that. Yeah, um, so the ancient world that Paul was in was much more what scholars call stratified than our world is. Kind of socioeconomically and in other yeah. ways too. Yeah. yeah, not racially. They weren't doing things based on race in Paul's world. And, and well, based on color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned earlier, Jews certainly bore the brunt of you know, periodic criticism here and there, but that was not especially based on skin color. Right, correct. As right. opposed to customs and holidays and Religious things along beliefs. those lines. Yeah, other other markers rather than skin color. Right, right. People people weren't basically discriminated on based on skin color. And if you looked at the slave population like a Rome or something like that, there'd be no way to say, I can pick out for you, you know, the next 20 slaves that walk past me. Right, yeah. You couldn't do that. <clears throat> You know, now yeah. you could pick out the poor people who walk past you, and some of them might be slaves, but some of those poor people could just be people who are free who happen to be really, really poor. Yeah. Yeah. So with this stratification, 
when people came to meals, usually the wealthy, wealthier, got the best seats mm-hmm. because at meals, this stratification from society was brought into the meals. Yeah. Okay. So people got best seats and, um, people who were slaves or the poor, sometimes they didn't get food or they got crummy food, you know? Um, and so what's happened is that's, that's infiltrated the Lord's supper, which had a meal with it. Mm -hmm. It had a meal with it. Um, if you don't, if you're not aware of that, if you'll read the the text that we read many Sundays from first Corinthians 11, Mm -hmm. you know, it will say after the meal, he took the cup. And so, you know, people have been reading this Sunday after Sunday for centuries and just read over and don't always understand the implication. But the text itself says that, you know, that Jesus broke the bread and then after the meal, yeah, took the cup. And so there's a meal. So the bread and the cup in, in, in early Christian practice probably bookended a uh, a meal that happened in Jesus's time, the Passover meal, but you know, in general, just sort of a meal, a communal meal and the bread and the cup bookended that meal. Is is that fair? That is fair because not only is it explicit, explicit in the gospels and in Paul's quotation of the gospels in Mm. in, uh, first Corinthians 11, where it says after the meal, they took the cup, but there's no way anybody can get drunk on the amount of, you know, yeah. Right? Yeah. the size of beverage we drank. Yeah, yeah. Wine. That, that yeah. wine was not uh, not 160 proof or something like that, right? Yeah. Nobody's getting drunk off of that. And when Paul says in summer going hungry, mm. no one's going to either be filled or hungry based on the wafers we serve. Mm. Okay, so th- there, there was a meal served. And so... Um, What's happened in the Corinthian church, where this is supposed to be a communal meal, because he says over in 1 Corinthians 10, the previous chapter, that we, though we are many, we take of one bread, you know, we become one body, is that this, there's no sense of communal being practiced. They're bringing in this uh, social, socioeconomic stratification from society. And so the rich, they're getting the best food. They're getting to eat first. The poor who show up later, because maybe they're slaves, maybe they have to work late because they have to, you know, work in a menial job. Sure. Yeah. They show up and there's no sense of a communal meal. The best yeah. food's been served. Maybe all the food's been served. And Paul's saying, How can you call this the Lord's Supper? This is a right. supper, but it's not the Lord's. Something I mean, the Lord's Supper, it'll have a stamp on it that you can recognize it's his. Mm-hmm. will have his spirit about it. And this is not the spirit of the Lord when you have a fellow Christians treating each other this way. You know, yep. Jesus said when the creator of the universe prioritized his commandments, he made the first two really clear. He didn't say what commandment number three through 99 would be, but the first two commandments are clear. And number two is, you love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus mm-hmm. 19. And so that's not keeping the second greatest commandment according to Jesus. And so yeah. it just doesn't have, that's why Paul said it really isn't even the Lord's Supper you're doing. 
Yeah. So that's another example is the meal. They're doing all, and, and Paul is so hostile about their behavior. He said, you're going to be judged along with the world if you don't change this. Mm -hmm. This is a really serious problem for Paul. Yeah. I mean, people can lose their relationship with God because of they're so violating what's, you know, this meal. Yeah. I, I remember one point in, uh, I think, chapel there at, at HST, you said something to this effect that kind of, I think, appropriately summarizes the point you've been driving home here. You cannot expect to participate in the vertical if things are corrupt in the horizontal. Yeah. And I think you were referring to the meal here in the Lord's Supper. You, you, you can't claim to be communing with God if you have intentionally excluded, disregarded, discounted the poor among you. Right. In, yeah. in, this, in this particular um, occasion. Yeah. And, you know, James, the book of James makes the same point yeah. in chapter one. And um, th that's why the, the first and second great commandments so beautifully bring together the vertical and the horizontal. The mm -hmm. first great commandment is vertical. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, etc. Mm -hmm. And the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. That's horizontal. Yep. Yep. And that's that's the nature of the Ten Commandments. The first four are about de wholehearted devotion to Yahweh. Mm -hmm. The last six are about treating your neighbor properly. Yeah. 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 So, and God's people historically, both the Jews first and the historically all the Christians for 2,000 years have missed the point on that. I, 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 off, very often, I believe very often that is, that is the case. I want to... Um, there's a there's a particular verse I had just looked at it um, just uh, just now. First um, Corinthians eleven, I think around verse twenty nine or so, Paul talks about the importance of discerning the body. And I have heard many people in communion devotionals use that verse to say that you need to think about Jesus's bloody body on the cross and that is how you discern the body i think in context though correct me if i'm wrong but in context though the idea of discerning the body there is not think about jesus on the cross but it is the gathered body of christ around you is that is, is that fair to say i think it is yeah I, part of the confusion and I believe it's the NIV. I believe it's the NIV made a uh, terrible error in their translation choice in terms of the manuscripts they used. Okay. And they they chose a really late, unreliable manuscript, which reads, discern the body of the Lord. Oh, body of the Lord. Body. Yeah, which lets you then think it's Jesus on the cross. Right, yeah. And if you read um, Gordon Fee or anybody who's skilled in textual criticism, mm -hmm. you will see his uh, correct criticism of their choice of using that manuscript. That's yeah. the only reason they would have picked that is they're trying to uh, prop up some interpretation of communion that's not there. Interesting. Yeah, the two Paul wants to talk about the elements. He says body and blood every other time in that section yeah 
apart from this issue of the manuscript that they use, it's really bad. Yeah. Every other I, time he wants to talk about the elements, it's body and blood. Mm -hmm. There's no body and blood here. It's just discern the body. Yeah. Yeah. I've got uh, here in front of me, I, I'm switching back and forth. I've got here in front of me a Greek New Testament, a New Revised Standard Version, an English Standard Version, and an NIV 2011. And so all three of those represent different uh, translation philosophies and things like that. The 2011 version of the NIV does, does say in verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Body of Christ is at least a, a more neutral because the church is the body of Christ. And so it contextually, it could, you le could lead you more easily to think, oh, this is talking about the gathered believers around me. Whereas uh, the others follow the Greek and just say the body without specifying body of Christ or body of the Lord. But the point is not you need to think about Jesus's body on the cross and be sad about it. The point is there is a um, there's a gathered body of believers around you, and if you are not sensitive towards the needs of this body, and you let these uh, let these uh, outside divisions weasel their way in and affect how you treat your the members of your own body this is bad news is is, is that fair yeah yeah I, I don't think we we need to limit paul's insights to just what would go on in the first century mm -hmm. the problem is when we take some modern interpretation and totally override what paul was saying you know, because some of these modern theories totally smother Paul's point, which is that you have a concern for one another. You have this horizontal concern. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, um, I, there's a whole host of other things that we could mention that we could talk about <laughs> you know, with specifically in reference to things that might happen to show up in, well, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14. All of those things are interesting topics, maybe for another time, uh, given the amount of time that we have left. Dr. Oster, as we kind of uh, wind down our conversation, is there anything, um, anything that 1 Corinthians offers that is either especially emphasized in 1 Corinthians that, isn't, that doesn't show up elsewhere? Or is there some unique contribution that First Corinthians offers that maybe you know this is this is the place to go to for this particular topic or idea? Um, I think what I, what I would say is you know I I think most people know that people at church like to study First Corinthians because it's um it's a book that has a lot of practical mm -hmm. circumstances there. It's not sort of in people's imagination at least laden with all this heavy theology like you might find in Romans or something. Or or, or something like Ecclesiastes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I would say beyond that, what people have missed is Paul's um, driving concern in all of these 
practical problems to bring people back to a life of sanctification and devotion to God that excludes this intrusion of the culture. And, and far too many Christians in the United States are pretty happy with the intrusion of the culture when it comes to values about cultural icons and things like um, sexualization of women, um, so much violence that's viewed as acceptable entertainment, uh, greed, things like uh, self-control. I mean, that's part of the fruit of the spirit is self-control. And you just can't think of much in our culture that promotes the the fact that self-control is a virtue. Right. Our whole culture is based upon the notion that you you don't control yourself unless it's criminal. Yeah. And so there are just many, many ways that culture is just eroding these biblical pr principles and virtues. And that's what these problems in Corinthians are all about. You know, either the people who became Christians at their baptism didn't sort of expel enough of the culture that was in them already, or they did, and immediately begins to intrude again and come back into their lives, either individually or corporately. Yeah. I think if we're going to embrace the message of First Corinthians, we need to say, I mean, to me, it explicitly goes hand in hand with the fact that the American church needs to acknowledge that we are under assault, that the culture is invading you know, us corporately in decisions that churches make and individually in our own lives and decisions. Mm -hmm. And so First Corinthians is not just a fun book to read because it you know, they have lots of problems and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, agreed, yeah. <clears throat> and, and you can see that erosion. Paul even at one point says, Yes, culture is, culture would have you think that some of these activities are okay, but even pagans know that what this guy in chapter five is doing with his stepmom is, is unacceptable. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's one of the, uh, that, that I think is, is one of the most telling, telling judgments that Paul renders is, guys. Yeah, Even the, uh, pagans know this is this is absurd. Yeah, when you see the the labels that movies get, you know the ratings that movies get in our society, mm -hmm. those ratings aren't put on there by Christians, right? Those, you know, and I've been to church activities where children were allowed and encouraged to go to certain you know church activities and things where movies were being shown, which even the secular society said these kids don't belong at this movie. Hmm. No, and either it was at an activity in a church member's home, or it was being sponsored by, you know, a, under the, sort of the umbrella of a church program, mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Even pagans. Not a problem in Texas, but. <laughs> I haven't. Uh, I haven't been here in a in a regular time. <laughs> I've only been here in a COVID and somewhat post-COVID time. So maybe things have a little more tame down here <laughs> in, 
the shining city by the sea, Corpus Christi. Dr. Oster, as we wrap up our time together this afternoon, what is a favorite passage that you have from 1 Corinthians? One, one that's just tried and true, a, a go-to favorite for you. Wow. Well, there are so many. There are so many. Um, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 is a great text. You know, um, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. That's always a great text. Yeah. Um, the text in 1 Corinthians 15 about the eternal sovereignty of God, that at the second coming, even Christ will be subject to God forever mm -hmm. so that God may be everything to everyone for always. That's uh, an important verse to me, the, the centrality of God the Father for eternity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. First Corinthians 13 is, uh, is a fan favorite. And interesting, too, when you talk about how, um, again, context matters and and all of that, we see, we see Paul taking the opportunity to, um, to offer a, a digression. I suspect he was not anticipating, hey, I've got some ideas that are going to be great for weddings in the future. <laughs> yeah, um, don't think they had Christian weddings back then. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Since you mentioned 1 Corinthians 13, help uh, as we wrap up here, would you help us tie in how does chapter 13 about love make sense in the midst of a discussion about spiritual gifts? And we'll, we'll wrap up with that. Okay. Uh, well, he says at the end of 12, you know, he wants to show them a better way. Mm. Um, and I think he's wanting to use the chapter on love to talk about perspectives that he have uh, on why love is uh, sort of the gold standard on how you, uh, you know, shaping your own attitudes as you understand others' gifts and others' ministries in the church. Mm -hmm. And um, also that it's the gold standard on understanding the relative nature of spiritual gifts, so no matter how uh, spectacular they are they are all temporal you know that tongues is going to be temporal and prophecy is going to be temporal and any ministry that exists in the church now no matter how spectacular it is it is temporal mm -hmm. okay but there are a few things that are eternal okay and love is one of those yeah so he's just trying to show that um uh divine love just is, is the standard because hum, humans tend to think these other things like prophecy and tongue speaking, that these are really the gold standard on spirituality. Yeah. That's why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you have these people appearing before the Lord on Judgment Day and saying, Lord, we did prophecies in your name. That's miraculous. Lord, we cast out demons in your name. That's miraculous. Lord, we did many mighty miracles in your name. So they're all three appearing before God, assuming that they're going to get let in to heaven based on miracle working skills. And mm -hmm. in all three cases, God says, I never knew you. Get away yeah. from me. I didn't know who you are. Mm 
you know? And so I think that just mentality, Simon Magus had the same problem with this kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of us can, you know, think that, you know, some particular ministry that the church has and is involved in, whether it's miraculous or not, is sort of the be all and end all. And we lose track of the fact that, that love is really the thing that is eternal. Yeah. It's the gold standard. Yeah. Dr. Oster, I think that's a good place to wrap up today. I really appreciate your uh, your time with us today. Any uh, any final uh, takeaways or uh, any home run points you want to leave us with as we uh, as we close this afternoon? No, I'm just uh, honored to have been had a chance to be on the program, yeah. and hope some things have come up that uh, have challenged people in their thinking and uh, help them in their walk with God. I appreciate it. Dr. Roster, take care. We'll talk to you later, okay?